Hey, everybody. Welcome to the first edition of Punk Rock HR. I'm Lori Rudiman. Today's guest is Lars Schmidt. He's a former HR leader turned writer, speaker, and entrepreneur. Lars is the author of a column in Fast Company. He's the owner of an executive search firm called Amplify Talent, and he's the founder of the 21st Century HR podcast. There ain't nothing Lars hasn't done in the world of HR and recruiting. But above all of those things in the world of talent, in the world of people, I think Lars is best known as a community builder. I know you're going to love this conversation because Lars is an honest, earnest, progressive guy with good ideas. And ultimately, he's still a skater boy at heart. So sit back and enjoy this very first episode of Punk Rock HR. You know, I'm having you on here today to like kick off Punk Rock HR to talk about real things and real issues in the world. And one of the things that's very evident to me is that you have this awesome podcast that's kicking butt and taking names. And I want to talk about that. So tell us a little bit about your podcast and maybe why you started it. Yeah. So it's a so the podcast is 21st Century HR. I started it. So I'll rewind to the beginning of last year. I started writing a year-long series in my Fast Company column on 21st Century HR. So basically what I wanted to do is I talked to my editor. I was like, I want to spend a year just spotlighting modern practices, companies, leaders that are kind of pushing the boundaries of HR, moving the field forward. Editor was down. He was like, great, let's do it. So I started writing that. And then as I wrote a couple posts, I started thinking there's a limit to how deep you can go in a thousand words, you know, which is typical length of a past company post. And so I was like, you know what, I want to, I was like, if I have a podcast, I can do interviews that are connected to the stories that I'm writing and I can embed those podcasts at the bottom of the story. So if a reader wanted to go deeper, if they wanted more depth kind of context to the story, they could listen to the podcast and, and get that. And so like literally, and I, I joke about this, from the moment I had that thought, right, the very first time that thought entered my head, within 24 hours, I had the website, I had everything syndicated, I had it built. I was just like, okay, go. And yeah, so it started off, you know, just as that. And then my writing cadence was once every about six weeks, the podcast became weekly. It started with, you know, me doing interviews and then me doing some solo episodes. And then over the course of the year, it kind of evolved into more of an interview format, mostly where I would interview CHROs and chief people officers and CEOs that, you know, I felt were kind of, you know, leading next generation people practices. And I wanted to highlight, especially for CHROs, I wanted to highlight that career journey, right? So I think most people don't know what that path is like. You know, they don't know you know, choices that you might make along the way that can position you to be able to be in that seat. And so I wanted to kind of shine a light on them and be like, okay, like, how do you get to that seat? Like, what are the things that you do? What are the different paths that you can take to get to a head of people role? And then I also wanted to drill specifically into some of their initiatives. So to really kind of shine a light on like, if the people are being really innovative around, you know, building inclusive policies and programs, like what does that look like? How do you build that? If people are really innovative around how they're going about recruiting, what does that look like? You know, with the idea that listeners can both get an insight into the the journey of an HR executive, but then also specifically get some practical takeaways. I love the podcast because I'm always left with a feeling of positivity, but that is deceiving because the world of human resources is still really broken. And so I wonder how you marry those two realities where you remain HR positive, which sounds like the coronavirus, right? But you are <laughs> HR positive. And yet the numbers don't show that HR is really moving the needle in most organizations. So I don't know. How do you square that circle? I hate that phrase, but you know what I mean. Uh, no, yeah. I get what you're saying. I mean, it's kind of... And I own this, right? 
right? And so I've, I've you know, called this out in some of my writing and podcasts. Like I choose my guests. And so I tend to interview leaders in companies that are making an impact and are doing innovative stuff. And so I'm not necessarily taking a 360 view of the field of HR because I'm not interested in talking to people in like legacy oriented companies. I'm not interested in old school HR. I don't want to highlight what that looks like and how that feels. I want to focus on like where things are going. And so I think I have the benefit through that of talking to leaders that are working at some really progressive companies and making an impact. You know, I'm on the rosier side of the field and that allows me to be more HR positive, as you mentioned. But I think part of it also is it's interesting, like some of the episodes, and I've been thinking about this a lot as I'm writing this book, now writing a book, 21st Century HR, based on a podcast. But it's like, you know, some of the conversations get into things like mental health and depression and suicide and yeah yeah i want to talk about that because your last podcast with colleen i can't remember her name but from credit karma the one that just Mm -hmm. most recently aired yeah colleen mccreary yeah oh colleen mccreary we'll have a link to that in the show notes she talks a little bit about burnout and one of the things that's interesting to me is that the length the tenure of a chief people officer a chief hr officer has really not changed over the past decade at most it's 36 months and regularly it's shorter than that i mean hr professionals have been burning out in all all kinds of environments. So I was interested in her take on that and interested in yours. So what'd you learn from Colleen? And what do you think about the idea of this position of HR still burning people out? Yeah, look, it's a really hard job. To me, it's one of the most difficult jobs in the C-suite. And I'll expand on that. Like I think today, especially if you look at, you know, again, I'm entirely focused on kind of next generation progressive teams, right? So like setting aside old school dinosaurs, like I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the modern teams. They're expected to have a grasp of the financials like a CFO. You know, they're expected to understand the go-to-market strategy like a chief revenue officer. They're expected to understand market positioning like a CMO. They're expected to understand the organizational overall strategy and then develop a people strategy that aligns to that, all the while dealing with like the most volatile asset of a company, which is its people, and dealing with shit like Me Too and Wage inequality, right? Wage inequality, employee deaths, you know, deaths in the family. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's a lot. And not that it hasn't always been a lot, but I think that the in those environments, the expectations of the value that a CHRO can bring is even higher because it's, they expect such you know business acumen, you know, in that role beyond just the HR acumen. All of those things coupled, I think, make it even more stressful than it was back in the day. So I love that answer, but I want to know if the chief people officer is required to understand all of these elements of the business, why aren't other business owners required to own the people aspect of their business? Why does that shit still come to HR? Like we don't say to the chief marketing officer, you're actually the head of HR for marketing. We don't say to the head of sales, you're responsible for the behaviors and the compensation practices of the sales organization. And yet we say to HR, you've got to know sales, you've got to know marketing, you've got to know analytics. So talk to me a little bit about maybe the unrealistic expectations. And is it sexism? Like I always go back to that because usually the head of people is often the mom figure of the company. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I would kind of push back on that and say, if you look at modern companies, that is what's happening. So this is to me, one of the big distinctions between old school HR and new school HR. You know, old school HR was a very centralized function and it was that by design. So like in this, in this appetite for getting a seat at the table or whatever bullshit you want to use, HR created all these processes that made them the conduit through which everything happened, right? So they inserted themselves. It was a bureaucracy. It was like, you know, we have to sign off on salary increases. We have to sign off on promotions. We have to sign off on, on whatever, you know, may happen. In modern HR teams, they're not insecure, right? So they're able to push back. Like their role is more creating the frameworks and programs where the department leaders can lead. 
and they can make those decisions. And it's not about taking things to HR. Like you shouldn't, like you're a leader, figure it out. Here's the guardrails, right? Like here's what you absolutely can't do. But within that, figure that out. And so I think you are starting to see, again, in these progressive companies, that going both ways, where the department heads are expected to take on more ownership of things that were traditionally people in HR functions. I think to your second point around sexism, like, and again, maybe and I'll own, like, I'll probably say this several times in podcasts, like I'm in a bubble, I'm working with progressive companies, but like, yes, I think that the HR executive role is still predominantly female, though certainly not exclusive, but I think the expectations are, are just different. It's not like, this isn't the department to create our holiday party. You know, they don't view it, you know, this is like I, I, Robin Schooling had a great post after Jack Welsh passed about some of his quotes that he used to call HR the picnic and parties function. Like that's not the expectation anymore in these leading companies. You know, I think a little bit about what you've said, and it's really compelling to listen to this aspirational idea of the 21st century HR department. But is that like 20% of HR as it exists today globally? Or is it more than that? Like, how does this shake out in the real world? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'd say less. You know, I'd say it's probably closer to 10%. Wow. Right now, from from what I've seen, the vast majority, you know, HR is a spectrum. So you have, you know, this kind of 10% is at the leading edge, probably 10%, if not maybe 20%. Is that like the personnel level, like still super old school? Yeah. And then you have this big, you know, group in the middle. And I think that middle group, they want to innovate, they want to progress, but I think a lot of them need leadership. They need guidance. They need permission. Or they need courage. They need courage. Absolutely, they need courage. Yeah. Well, I wonder what the differentiator is between that top 10% and everybody else. I mean, is it the emergence of technology? Is it just being brave, being bold? What have you observed that makes the 21st century HR leader different than everybody else? Yeah, courageous. So courage certainly plays into it. Competent. So somebody, again, that has that right mix of both HR acumen and business acumen. I think poise, right? And you know, I say confident. I don't mean that from an ego perspective, but from certainly have egos. I think it's more of just like, I'm not here to justify why I exist. I'm not here to like defend my team from all the bullshit stigmas that you place on an HR department. And I think if you look at some companies, like again, I do a lot of my work in tech. I think tech generally is very fast paced. It is very progressive. They look to those teams to be able to help them scale and support their growth and they're screwed without them. Well, I like a leader who who says, I dare you to fire me. I know I'm on the right side of history. I know I'm doing great things. Watch me. You know, and if you don't like it, I'm gone. And there are many guests that you've had on your podcast that really embody that confidence. So can you tell us maybe a story or two of people that you admire who moved you or might be good role models for someone out there who is looking for an example of leadership that they can copy? Yeah. I mean, uh, God, it's it's hard. Like there's there's a lot that I respect and admire and I think do really good work. You know, uh, Katarina Berg at Spotify to me is like, I would bottle her experience and plug that into any company. And I think you could blossom. Like she's just, she gets it. She's smart. She's empathetic. She knows her shit. She's respected as hell throughout Spotify and and she gets things done. And she's always wanting to learn as well. So I think part of what I really like about that model of HR executive is none of them come into this thinking that they have all the answers. None of the, you know, none of them come into it thinking, okay, like, I've got this. There's nothing I haven't seen. Like they maintain a willingness and an appetite to learn uh, and grow. So, you know, she would be one. I'm a huge fan of Caitlin Holloway. She was the CPO at Reddit. She just joined uh, Initialized Capital as a partner there. But again, 
Yeah, too bad for Reddit. They need her. Huh. Yeah, well, they got uh, Nellie Peshkoff from Netflix uh, who moved into that seat. Nellie is super talented as well. So, But yeah, I think combining the acumen, being able to be relatable and talk to your employees, like an example would be with MailChimp. So Becky Cantieri is their chief people officer. And as I was prepping for the podcast with her, they had rolled out fertility benefits to their employees. And when they did, she wrote a blog post about it, sharing her own experience with infertility and the struggles that she had starting her own family in a very real and honest and emotional way. And I think it allowed her to connect with her employees and really empathize with them in a way that I think traditionally most HR executives that tend to be stoic and buttoned up and you you don't know anything about them beyond what shoes they love to wear and kind of how they like to communicate in meetings. She said like, hey, this is my journey too. Your journey is my journey. And she talked to lots of employees who shared their own experience as part of where the idea behind that benefit came from. But this, this willingness to be real and vulnerable and relatable, right? You know, David Hanrahan is another example where he's a CHRO at Eventbrite. Now he was a CHRO at Niantic before. And in our conversation, you know, he talked about talking about mental health in front of all employees where he talked about his own bouts of depression and, you know, wondering what his life, how it was going to unfold. And, you know, just having dark, dark thoughts that he shared in a town hall type setting with other leaders who were talking about that. And so just that, that willingness to be real and vulnerable, I think, allows them to make connections with their employees and teams that traditionally HR leaders just never did. You know, some of these topics that you talk about, fertility, well-being, wellness, mental illness, these are not just corporate issues. These are human issues, but they're political issues. You know, when you and I were growing up in HR, HR wanted to really separate. They wanted that Trumpian wall between work and politics. And now that wall is crumbling down, thank God, just like that Trump wall in Mexico, blown (laughs) right over. (laughs) Hey, the foundation was wet. Uh, It was very windy. Oh, barf. So I I really wonder what your take is. We've got an election coming up. We've got all these political issues coming up. I really feel like HR is the intersection of, and I've said this before, work, power, politics, and money. And yet there's so many HR departments that don't want to touch it. Like politics are the third rail. So any reflections on that? Any thoughts on that? Any good examples on that from your podcast? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a tough one, right? Because I think a lot of companies, and there's no absolute right or wrong answer. Like there's some companies just by nature of the company, lean conservative. Some companies lean liberal. Some governing bodies of our function might have conservative leanings that influence at a macro level. I think that when you talk about best practices, the, the best thing I've seen are companies that are willing to have real conversations internally. And I think this comes up a lot in the conversation around inclusion and belonging. Companies like, for example, Asana. Asana has a real talk series where they talk about, you know, what is it like to be a black woman in tech? What is it like to be a gay man? in the Midwest, right? And like different, like real conversations. And that's, I think part of it is, you know, HR has always been so reluctant to engage or to create any kind of construct where those conversations can even happen. And now I think you're starting to see more companies actually create, I shouldn't say that, this is a very small percentage of companies are doing this, but I think they're seeing success where they're creating those specific forums to say, let's have these conversations. Let's learn from each other with an openness and a set of respect kind of try to get a sense of like where others are coming from. And I think it's hard because politically we're in this absolutely toxic time where, you know, if you are a a never Trumper and a Trump loyalist, like I don't know where that middle ground is. Well, and there's nobody who's really bringing the two together. And that's what I worry about with this HR community. You have these great companies who are well-networked within themselves. And then you have the rest of America trying to figure out the world. And then you have people like you and me who are trying to be a resource to 
all different HR professionals. You know, you're talking to the elite, but you're also talking to everyday HR leaders. You put together this coronavirus resource. So for me, I think like the government should put together a coronavirus resource list for HR professionals, but here you are doing it. So tell us about the list and tell me why you did it. Yeah, well, so I started seeing a lot of conversations happen in my different HR networks probably two weeks ago. And I think people just had questions and it was clear there was still a lot of, I mean, not that there's less uncertainty now, like there remains a lot of uncertainty, but they didn't know where to go and they weren't seeing what other companies were doing. And I was starting to see some people share like, hey, I saw, you know, Coinbase open source their coronavirus policy. And so I saw that and it made me think, so my first thought was, let me curate a bunch of these resources and write a fast company story so I can make it easy for folks to find these resources and people that are thirsty for answers. And you know, I'm, I wasn't seeing those answers coming from government or anywhere else. So I said, let me just do what I can to create something. The Fast Company article had a lot of traction, but I also realized that like posts are static. The situation is anything but. So then for me, like the next evolution of that was creating an, an open source Google Doc where I could use that to curate ongoing information because stuff's breaking by the day, but then also open that up to anybody else who wanted to also contribute and add content. Because I'm just like, you know, in an open source way, we can all work together to try to create as much information and resources so we can hopefully make the best decisions as we're able to. And so, yeah, it's been cool. I mean, that just went out yesterday. And I don't know exactly when this is going to air. So yesterday is not a relevant term, but it went out uh, in the <laughs> middle of this week. Who cares? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, exactly. And, um, <laughs> and it's had tons of traction. And so, you know, LinkedIn is going to share it, you know, with their network and CultureAmp and some other, you know, vendors are starting to share it. And my aim is just like, we're kind of in uncharted territory here. Like we have the potential to become indefinite uncharted territory. So whatever we can do as a community to kind of come together and open up our own playbooks. I mean, it's very similar to the HR open source ethos, like whatever we can do to bring people together and share how they're approaching it, what they're doing, what they're learning and have a centralized, updated crowdsourced resource. You know, we're all more informed and hopefully that can help us make better decisions for our companies. Well, we'll include a link to that in the show notes. And it just reminds me that the way you and I met was through this act of just like, let's get it done. Let's connect, right? And that's kind of been the attitude that you've shared and has inspired me. But maybe we should tell people how we met. Like, Do you want to tell that story? I love hearing it from you. You know, (laughs) I would love to. So the very, very first time we met, there was a uh, an HR blogger dinner at Sherm, I don't know what it was like 2009-ish. And so we met there, like I had no business being there. Matt Charney invited me, I crashed it because I wasn't oh, a blogger at that idea. point. And yeah. oh, well, for, <laughs> for all of you, it was great for me. So I met all of you there. And then I saw your talk at Sherm when I was there, which I loved. I think that's where I fell in love with Lori because I'm just like, you just kept it very real. And I think, you know, literally like as you're saying fuck it a few times, I saw people like clutching their pearls and walking out. And I'm like, this is if we can't have these oh, frank conversations, yeah. if we're going to yeah. get offended, like if you can't see beyond terms that you might not agree with and actually connect with the content and the message, like that's on you. Right, not not you. Like that's on the the audience. Not my favorite moment as a speaker, but yeah, I didn't know yeah, you were in the room. Yeah, but wow. I, but, okay. But, so, okay, so you repelled some people. It's just like employer branding. You want to both repel and attract. Uh-huh, you yeah, repelled yeah. those attendees. You attracted me. There's a story me. behind that. I'll share. Uh, with but anyway, I didn't. I didn't know you were in the room. Yeah, so I, I was in the room, and I think at the time I was running recruiting and innovation for NPR, and then we just got to talking. Actually, I think it was the conference in San Francisco. Was it an ERE, an HCI, a something, a God, talent something? It? I think it was maybe knows? like a social recruiting strategies oh, conference yeah. or something like yeah. that at like the Museum of Technology. I don't know. But we, we got to talking and we're just like, this cool thing, Google Hangouts just came out. Well, wait, before that, I, I'm going to interrupt you because okay, I, please do. 
physically grabbed you from across the room. And I said, Laura Schmidt, we got to work together. We got to figure out a way to work together. (laughs) You did. And I think like that for me was one of the pivotal moments of my career because for so long, I was just floating along, even as a blogger, even as a consultant, just kind of taking in business that was coming my way and not really in control of my destiny. And it's one of my earliest moments of really seeing something that I wanted, not knowing where it was going to go, but knowing we had a connection, knowing we could do something cool and pursuing it. And I I have that memory so blazed in my head because you could have been like, Lori, get away from me. You know? <laughs> or like, yeah, yeah, girl, I don't want to work with you. I don't want to do anything with you. But instead you were like, yeah, Amiga, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> I did. No, I remember that. But I was I was stoked. I had appreciated your approach. I had been you know reading your stuff. So I, you know, you were more on my radar, I think, than I was on yours. And so when you reached out, I'm just like, yeah, let's find something to do. And we we created one of the first Google Hangout career oriented programs. Terrible of, idea, uh, but <laughs> horrible idea. We had fun for four months. We did. And, or, that, for, no, four episodes, I should say. One four month, episodes. four episodes. But the whole point of that, and I think our friendship has always been like, just be honest, just be relentlessly in pursuit of something fun and interesting to do. And also what I've learned from you is to make sure I'm of service to something or someone. Like you model that for me, Lars, in my life. So whenever I'm like, ah, oh, FHR, F recruiting, I think, no, like that's not the right attitude. To have the right attitude is to find a way to be productive, to move it forward. I can still be cynical. I can still be cranky. I can be all of that. But as long as I'm of service, I'm on the right side of history. So thank you for teaching me that. Oh, that's very cool of you to say. And I mean, like you've always operated that way. It's kind of like you go back to the coronavirus document. You know, that was something where I'm like, why hasn't anybody done this? This would be really helpful for people. Fuck it, I'm going to do it. And so, and you've done this. I mean, you've watched lots of things that have helped both the industry and helped job seekers. You've had a voice that I've always admired and I think has always been brave and like willing to kind of speak your truth, which not many people are. And so I've always taken that from you. I think when I look at people who have this voice that's confident and informed and brave and willing to kind of speak up and speak truth to power, which, you know, you have no issue doing, that's definitely something I've always admired about you. And I, and I take those cues from you as well, because I think you know, not just me, I know a lot of people. Do. Well, I'm glad we're friends, Lars. And thanks for being the first guest on the rebooted Punk Rock HR. I'm excited. And next step, book, man. Oh God, got to get that book out. I know. I'm stoked for you. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to get my hands on it. All right, Lars. It was great to see you. Thanks again for everything today. Yeah, you too, Lori. Go Punk Rock HR. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lars Schmidt. He dropped a ton of resources and I'm going to have all of those on my website at laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr-98. This episode and my entire rebrand and everything I do in the world of podcasting is made possible by Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Productions. And if you have any feedback for us, you can hit us up at L Rudiman. Everywhere there's a social media platform. That's all for today's episode. And I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next week on Punk Rock HR. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.